chapter 5, the second verse of chapter 5, you'll find, if you're using the Pew Bible, it'll be page on page 1040, 1040 in the Pew Bible. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you shall no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word Proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, this is your word. You say that your word will not return to you void. I pray that you would do your perfect work this morning with it. Bless thy servant that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. In Christ's name, we pray. So today we're looking at an, uh, an epistle. It's, an epistle is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the early church in the city of Ephesus. Scholars, biblical scholars, believe this was written around the year A.D. 60 to 62, sometime in that time frame, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Now, to get some idea of the environment of the church that Paul was writing to, just to give you an idea, the city of Ephesus was a very large city and it had a large population. It was one of the richest cities and probably the most prosperous area of the Roman Empire at that time. It was also rich in a different way, in pagan idolatrous worship, namely of the goddess Diana. It was fascinated by magic, by the occult, and it was a time when sexual immorality was par for the course. Very similar, I guess you could say, to the time we live in. 
Now, those who had become followers of Jesus had found themselves being in a minority in this environment. In the vastness of that city, the opposition to that church was strong, and it was threatening. You can read some of this, actually, if you go to Acts 19. I'll leave that for you to do on your own. But the primary focus what Paul is writing to this group of believers is on the mystery of Christ's church. The church is God's new humanity, a group of people that experience a foretaste of renewed unity and dignity of the human race that will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I divided this sermon in, in an outline, the three sections. You'll find that in your bulletin. Verses 4, 17 through 19, saying no to the old life. Verses 4, 20 through 24, the new man. In verses 4, 25 to 5, 2, putting off and putting on. Now there's a saying in the ancient classical world goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. It's an encouragement to conform. For example, if you're among sophisticated people, you act sophisticated. If you're among earthly common types, act earthly and common. If you're among pagans, act like a pagan. After all, you don't want to stand out, at least if you, don't want, if, if you want to get on and be successful in this world. There may be some advantages to doing this and conforming to the ways of others. It gets one light. It opens doors. It certainly helps if you want to be accepted by your peers. However, in most contexts, this saying is not only foolish, it's especially fatal to us, the Christian, when we try to conform to the world. Now, that's part of Paul's message today in our reading. He is writing to those who are in Christ in Ephesus who live different, to, that tells them to live differently. Why? Because they are different. He has also been telling the church and how they fit in the vast scheme of things because of what seemed to them a very precarious situation for them. Up to this point in the letter, pre part that we haven't looked at today, but leading up to this point, he has told them that they are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. He has said they are chosen before the foundation of the world, chapter 1, verse 4. They are adopted sons and daughters in Christ, verse 5 in chapter 1. They have received an inheritance that cannot fade, chapter 1 again, verse 11. And then in verse 13, he tells them they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He also says that God made them alive who were once dead in trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1. And he tells them that they have been saved by grace, that they've been saved through faith and not of themselves. It is a gift of God. Now Paul starts out in verse 17 by saying that they should no longer walk as those in the world that don't know Christ. It's not that he's passing out advice relevant only to that time period. It's advice that goes for us as well because it is God's word that is fixed in the heavens and the pattern for all believers in all circumstances, for all time. But before he does this, he starts out reminding them from which they have been delivered by coming to Christ, leaving their old life of sin. 
Paul starts by describing the nature of the present world. It's a world that has fallen, that is apart from God's grace. It is filled with individuals that only practice evil continually. He refers to them as being futile in their thinking. They walk in the futility of their mind, and they are darkened in their understanding, as we see in verse 18. Paul is saying that those who do not know God cannot know truth or even think properly. Everything's out of place. And this leads to a disordered and sinful mind leading to disordered and sinful conduct. We can see this in the world around us today. Just turn on your news in the evening. There seems to be a sense of urgency coming from the Apostle Paul in his writing. He's telling them to refer, he's referring to the mind. Sometimes we think what a person thinks is really not that important as long as he or she acts properly. Or, the other way around, that a person can act wickedly and still have his life together intellectually. That's not what Paul's saying. The reason that people do wickedness or live a life of sin is because apart from God, they are vain in their thinking and darkened in their understanding. In other words, our problems go back to the mind. It's here and not elsewhere that a person has his chief flaw. Now, the second truth Paul is getting to in his writing, describing the world, is uh, explained in the latter half of verse 18 and verse 19. It's because of the hardening of people's hearts. It's a hardening of their hearts. In the original Greek, from which this was written, the original word is poreos, which means hardness, hardening, callous, or stone. Now, our New King James Version refers, translates this word as blindness. The NIV and the ESV versions of the scriptures translate this word ignorance. Now, these probably aren't the best translations because it gives an impression that people just have a morally blindness, blameless inability. And that's not really what the case Paul is saying here. No, Paul is saying that the world is very much to blame for being alienated to God. They have willfully hardened themselves against God, a willful desire to keep God out of their lives. Now, Paul develops the same line of thinking in a very, very famous verse, Romans chapter, uh, chapter, verse 1, verses uh, 18 through 23. We're told in that passage that God has revealed himself to people in nature. Therefore, what? They have no excuse. Now, we look out the window and we can see this. Now, this revelation is limited in regards to salvation, but nevertheless, it's a real revelation that should lead one to worship God properly. But people reject, even suppress, this revelation. Why do they do that? Because if they didn't, they would need to change their thinking and they would need to change their behavior. Rather than change their lives, they repress it, they put it away. Jesus says this in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, verse 19, where he says people did not come to Jesus because they loved darkness rather than what? Light. So being an atheist is a willful choice. We see this reflected when one picks up a baby, holds a baby in his arms, is looking down at the baby, or, he's, or someone is gazing out on a vast, beautiful landscape out in the countryside and arrogantly saying, I see nothing here. 
I see nothing here that points to divine creation. Because of this, God's wrath is upon them. We reject him. And this happens not only at the final judgment, but now. He gives them up, we're told in that passage in Rome. He gives them up to their sins, to sexual impurity and shameful lust. As St. Augustine said, one said, the punishment of sin is more sin. When the world rejects the mastery of God, they don't become what they desire, being their own master. They just put themselves under a whole bunch of masters. One is the master of deceit. They believe the lie. This lie leads to more lies. And since one's view of the world starts with a lie, then they will compound that lie in order to secure themselves. That is, they reject or explain everything away that comes from the mouth of God. They also put themselves under the mastery of darkness, which leads to being under the mastery of despair, and eventually under the mastery of death. This is exactly what God said from the very beginning that would be the consequence of man turning their backs on him. So to summarize, Paul is telling us that Christians' joy, the Christians' joy and glory is the world's en enemy. So we are not on the same team as the world. Today, that team would be one of atheistic humanism. We are no longer to live in a world like them, but live like the world who have no hope. Why is that? Well, Paul immediately starts off in verse 20 by making a reference to Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we have embraced truth and not the lie. We have been set apart by him and for him and now are commanded to what? To be transformed. How do we move more in this direction of transformation? Well, it certainly doesn't come from foolish humanistic endeavors like self-discovery, human potential movements like EST, mind dynamics, lifespan, and Scientology. No, this comes from abiding in Jesus Christ through his word and by the working of him, the Holy Spirit. Now Paul uses three verbs in verses 20 through 21, all to do with getting our minds filled with the truth in Christ. First, Paul says that we have learned Christ, verse 20. It has a more profound meaning than just learning or knowing about the history of Christ or his doctrines. Yes, because we're in Christ, this changes as being in Christ at the deepest level through the indwelling Holy Spirit that is present in all true believers. As one commentator said, actually it's Charles Hodge, to learn Christ does not merely mean merely to learn his doctrines, but to attain the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, God in our nature, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and life. The second thing Paul says is that we have heard Christ. Paul does not say we heard of Christ. We actually hear Christ. We actually hear through Christ through God's appointed means of preaching his word. This is how he primarily speaks to us. He can also speak to our hearts as we read and study and meditate on his word. But think of it. How often do you hear the word of God preached on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden you're thinking, Jesus is speaking to you personally. 
This is not merely a subjective thought or a feeling. It's a supernatural work of him, the Holy Spirit, the ultimate teacher who is always at work in his people. This is why we really miss out when we're not in church on Sunday morning and not hearing God's word brought forth to us. Then Paul says, we have been taught by him, that is Christ. A better translation is found in the NIV, which states, in him rather than by him. This is because Jesus is the school, the teacher, and the subject of instruction. In verses 22 through 24, Paul is writing to put off the old man, the life of sin, and put on the new man who lives unto righteousness and holiness by being renewed in the spirit of of the mind, of our mind. Again, this mind comes into play. The mind again for Paul. He stresses this elsewhere in the Bible in Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He is telling us that the battle for spiritual growth and victory is really a battle for the mind. When we come to Christ, our affections in regards to him change if we're truly in Christ. Our affection, we have a love for him. Once we didn't want part of our lives, we didn't want anything to do with God. To be honest, we hated God, like we described earlier. But when we come to Christ, our affections change. We should want to know him more. We, we love him. We want to know more about the things of Christ as given to us in his word. This is his love letter to us. Give an example. I like to give an example of a, a, a couple that's courting when... A man and a woman get together. They are enamored with one another. They're, you could say they want to be around that person all the time. They want to talk to that person all the time. Even if they play hard to get. Really, when they play hard to get, it's a way to get that person to want to commit more to them. It's a strategy. But we, want to, we should want to know Christ more. Because we love him. This love that we have for Christ should desire, drive us to desire the reading and the hearing of his word. This in turn brings forth transformation because the Holy Spirit always works in conjunction with his written word. So though Paul is giving instruction, things we must do, he's really proclaiming indicative statements. Indicative statements of fact in regards to our new nature. That a person in Christ should naturally engage in and desire such things, which makes us put on the new man or the new woman in true righteousness and holiness, as we read in verse 24. Now, one of the great practical methods for renewing the spirit of the mind is what the Puritans practice. Unfortunately, this is not something, it's not quite so predominant today, but this is I'm referring to biblical meditation. The Puritans taught that believers must think deeply about things found in Scripture. This is a practice that Paul is prescribing for us. Now, the reasons why biblical meditation is not popular in our day are many. There's a misconception. They equate it with Far East religious practices where you try to empty your mind and you repeat a single word over. I'm not even sure, but it... I think there's a fear of that, and that's why we don't uh, go into biblical meditation. A neglect of God's word is another reason. We use 
a busy schedule for the reason why we don't do it. We're too busy. It's a matter of setting priorities. A wrong thinking on the importance of doctrine. Doctrine, you know, people think, oh, it's too intellectual. It's not very spiritual. But don't be fooled by that. That's the devil's lie. We desperately need to learn doctrine. Otherwise, we don't know what we believe. And we can be swayed by anything that's out in the world. And also, there's idols in people's lives that crowd out biblical reading and meditation, such as entertainment, TV, movies, sports. There's a whole list goes on. The idea of meditation is not some old, outdated, overly pious practice by the Puritans. Oh, well, they were just too consumed with things of the Bible and not connected, really, to everyday life. No, the practice of meditation is biblical. It's scriptural. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We can also see references to biblical meditation in Philippians 4. 8 and 9, Revelation 2.5, Luke 2.19, Hebrews 2.13. So it's abounding in scripture. The Puritans understood that failure was guaranteed if a believer did not have a plan for what to do with his thoughts during the day. William Bates, a Puritan, once quoted saying, Meditation would be a means to cure the most vicious part of our lives. For what is the wickedest part of man in his life? It's his vain thoughts. The new man or woman in verse 24 is, has been created by God, it says. The old way of life has been cast off like a garment. The old person is not who we are anymore. Our old lifestyle was self-destructive, full of wicked desires and deceits. Karl Barth, once he wrote, he says, every trait of the old man's behavior is putrid, crumbling or inflated like rotting waste or cadavers, stinking, ripe for being disposed of and forgotten. In Christ, followers of him, our old man or woman, is buried. It's buried not in the earth, but in the water of our baptism. Not death destroyed, but buried by death destroyer, Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or why do you not know? Or do you not know that many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized unto his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. As we move on to verses 25 through 32, Paul is giving five concrete ways the Christians are to put off their old lives and put on life in Christ. What, are this, what is this new behavior or works? We do see a parallel passage to this section, uh, Colossians 3, 8, and 9. But first, the first thing that Paul writes to them in this section is to put off lying and to speak truth. Being redeemed in Christ, we are people of the truth. Satan is called the liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. His ways along with his followers in the world is the opposite of what is true and what is holy. The psalmist describes God's word in Psalm 119, verses 160, saying the entirety of your word 
is truth. A slander is a lie. A statement deliberately intended to mislead another person is a lie, particularly when, that, when the misleading is for our own advantage. We must put on truth, and we must cultivate truth. A commentator, William Barclay, quotes some wise words from Samuel Johnson, who said, It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. Now, whether that statement is true for the world is questionable, but it certainly probably is true for us, the Christian. Paul's reasoning for such a high standard for this is in verse 25. What? That we are all members of one another. We are members of one body, he writes. Earlier, before this passage in chapter 4, verse 15, he had already spoken of this, of the unity and the health of the body being established through all speaking the truth in love. Second, we are to put off anger. Now, there is such a thing as a righteous anger we are to put on because Paul is saying, be angry and do not sin. We may exhibit this when we see acts of wickedness done to others or when something is done that is an affront to the holiness of God. We become angry. That's righteous anger. Our trouble is usually in that, not that area, though, if we're honest with ourselves, because all too often we are sinfully wrapped up with our personal feelings, our pride, our self-image, resulting often in ungodly reactions. We are also commanded not to let the sun go down on our wrath. That is to quickly remedy the situation so as not to let feelings, bitter feelings, linger and take hold, building harbor in our hearts. This is the perfect opportunity for the evil one to really cause division in the, in the church. Now, all of Paul's admonitions that he's writing in this section, in some way they're linked to God's Ten Commandments, but the third is more explicit. That is to put off stealing. We see that in verse 28. Now, there are many ways we can steal. But in this case, Paul instructs those who are in the habit of taking somebody else's property, which doesn't belong to them, and to stop and put on working for a living. Now, the world may say, hey, that's good. That's great. Go to work. Work hard because that'll build self-esteem. Or because then you'll be able to buy the things you really enjoy and you'll be able to live the good life. No, here Paul is saying because you will then have something to share with those in need. It gives an opportunity to give, to mimic Christ who gave his all for us. Now the fourth thing is to put off corrupt talk and instead on to put on a speaking to help others in verses 29 and 30. The Greek word for corrupt is sapros. The word is used to describe the fruit that is rotting. This is what some talk does. It corrupts things. It rots them away. In contrast to this, Christians are to use words to build people up. Speech is a powerful tool. We all know that. We can use it for good, and we can use it for evil. We read this in James, the book of James, chapter 3. The wickedness of our hearts is most manifested in our speech. Jesus said it's not what goes into the man that defiles him. It is what comes out of the man, but what comes out of the man in Matthew 15, verse 11. 
transforming our minds, helps us control our wicked and evil tongue. This is why Paul specifically writes here not to grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 30. Yes, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a force. And he can be saddened by our ungodly conduct. This is not just a New Testament idea. We find it in the Old Testament as well in Isaiah 63. And lastly, Paul gets into we are all to put off all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking that is filled with malice. To instead be kind to each other, tender-hearted while forgiving each other. What's our incentive, according to Paul in this passage, in addition to not grieving the Holy Spirit? It's like he's saying to us, act like Christians, for God's sake. We are to be like Paul said, because God is that character. We are to be imitators of him, God. Verse 5.1. Most notably, Jesus has modeled that Christian grace is for us. When we think of his love, his sacrifice, the infinite amount of sin debt the Lord has forgiven us, do we have any right not to forgive our brethren and please God in all aspects of our life, as it says in 5.2? Okay, so what's the crux of what Paul is telling us in this passage today? I think it should be make us think and ask ourselves, are we going to be a people that moves along with the culture? Are we going to be people that moves the culture? The church at Ephesus was moving the culture. Yes, we are saved by faith, but as you've heard, a faith that isn't alone. A real faith in Christ has a manifest effect on the individual. No effect, likely no saving faith. Jesus said that a tree is known by its fruit. Unfortunately, according to people like Michael Horton, who's a renowned Christian teacher, uh, 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 professor at Westminster uh, in California, he says, unfortunately, this is a likely condition of most majority of churchgoers in, the, in America today. How can this be? Mostly because of poor preaching that does not, is not from the word of God, poor theology, People not being grounded in God's word. When we neglect God's word, when we don't listen to God's word, we leave minimal opportunity for the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation. This leads to unsaved individuals, or at best, an anemic and ineffective Christian. This results in many churches to limit their thinking, such as... You know, living a Christian life, that's just a moralism. Do unto your, you know, do good to your brother as he would have, you would have him do unto you. That's just moralism. They also may limit their thinking of Jesus to one who relieves all my anxieties or he meets all my felt needs. He is my best friend and helps me cope with life. He's a great moral teacher and example for everyone. Now, all those things are certainly true for a Christian. However... What is often not seen is the wretchedness of our hearts, the wretchedness of our sin, and the need of him as a savior, as the forgiveness of our sins, and not only that, a transformation of our hearts. In reality, these people, people like that, are really believing like Nicodemus did. Remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus by night in John 3? Remember Nic Nicodemus... He said, he, he came, he said he knew that Jesus was a teacher that came from God. 
Now that's a far cry from believing that Jesus was the promised one who came as foretold, as outlined in the books of the Old Testament. One commentator writes about Nicodemus. He says, what Nicodemus didn't realize during that conversation with Jesus what is that is his spiritual soul was much darker than the darkness of the night in which he came to Jesus. At a point, a point of that passage is that even upright, sincere religious individuals can by nature be without hope and without God in the world. This can include even notable church leaders that we see. It can mean deacons, pastors, elders. Now I'm thinking that someone may come to me after the service and say, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to judge others because we just don't know how God is working in them spiritually. And you know what? They're absolutely right. These things are for you and for me to ask ourselves and examine ourselves. A gut check. I got that word from Pastor Ned, I think it was last week or the week before in one of his sermons. I liked it. I wrote it down. Gut check. A word that is something that, it, this is something that's really uncomfortable, but it's very biblical and potentially life-saving. Now, knowledge, we've talked about knowledge. It's important. It's imperative for conversion because we read in Romans 10, there needs to be a preacher to bring forth that information. It's required after conversion to grow spiritually as we learn doctrine, get into God's word. But what the church needs most today, what's of most importance, is not merely information, but regeneration. Not a self-help renovation, but a transformation. Both these are needed to correctly see the Bible as spoken by God, as having authority over us. We don't judge the Bible the Bible by fallen human standards. The Bible judges us. A true faith in Christ is a miracle. It's a miracle. It's so unbelievably transformative that the best analogy one can give is a physical birth. We see this when Jesus also tells Nicodemus in that same chapter, John 3. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless as one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again... It's often seen as a cliche, but it's quite biblical. There's this attitude I find out when I do the, the, uh, the Bible studies at, at Fort Hudson. You know, it's almost like an idea there's two types of Christians, born-again Christians and you know, regular Christians. No, if anyone is a Christian, they are born again. Or another term would be born from above. God tells us of this transformation he will do to us. He foretells this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I'm going to read it, but if you want to follow along, it's in, on page 766 of your pew Bible. Ezekiel, Ezekiel is writing. God speaks. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Christianity is a heart change. Yes, it's a transformation that further grows in the process of our sanctification. 
Sanctification is a process where we are molded more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is what moves the world. It turns the world upside down. The church was accused of this in Thessalonica. We read this in Acts 17, that these Christians were turning the world upside down. But really what they were doing is turning the world right side up. Now, we can't make ourselves, we can't do it on our own effort, make, a one, or make, us, make ourselves one of God's children by our own effort. We're dead in trespasses and sin. But if, if, we, if, if we do have love and obedience lacking in our life, if we see that and we get a little concerned, what's the answer? We continue in the things of Christ by faith. By faith. There are many who have said that they've repeated, repeatedly come into church every week. They've repeatedly tasted. They've tasted Christ in worship week after week. And then one day they tasted, saw that he was good, and they were changed. They were changed by God. They were rescued from the grip of their sin, and the change led them to taste more. Running to Jesus all the faster, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Have you been transformed? Do you have an earnest desire to be transformed? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Though you don't visibly see Jesus Christ, you love him and view him altogether lovely, as Peter writes in his first epistle, first epistle chapter 1. Do you more and more want to see God's name regarded as hallowed and want to glorify him in, in your daily life through obedience? Are you in God's word? To get to know him and his ways more, do you now love people, especially the brethren? Are you committed to his visible church, wanting to be with your new brothers and sisters in Christ, making Sunday worship the highlight of your week? Now, the, if these characteristics are not common with fallen humanity. If you possess these things, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and have been born of God at some time in your life because you became a new man or a new woman. God worked on you. God saved you. Some remember the moment. Most may not. Now, what if we're uncertain, lacking assurance? The first, first thing to know is that it's not the quality or the abundance of faith that saves. Even the smallest amount of true faith saves us. It's crucial, however, that a wavering faith, if we have a wavering faith, it's crucial that we don't look to ourselves. It must look to another. It's Christ, who is the object of our faith in which our salvation lies, and therefore is also, also in Christ, our assurance lies. Pray to him, lean on him, look to his word, word that transforms, and strive to love the brotherhood, as Calvin stated. He who, struggling with his own weaknesses, presses towards faith in his moments of anxiety is already in part victorious, Calvin says. Let me repeat that again. Calvin says, He who, struggling with his own weaknesses, presses towards faith in his moments of anxiety is already in part victorious. Press on in Christ as Paul did in Philippians chapter 3. Now, if you came today not knowing Christ, but now you want to, look to him in faith. Trust in what God says in his word. He is the one who came and is able to meet your greatest need, our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins. And we have a new life in Christ that lasts for eternity. If we do not have Christ, if you don't have Christ, you ultimately will have no hope. Jesus says himself, recorded in John 
chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, bless my dear brothers and sisters in the faith here. Thank you for your written word. It tells us we need to be transformed and we are to move the world, not to be moved by the world. We pray that we'd be a people that would be diligent in the means of thy grace, the reading your word, attending, attending fellowship, O oh Lord, using your means of grace, that we pray without ceasing, that we look to you in all things. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins and where we lack, give us newness of life. May your spirit be at work today and every day. And all of us, walk with us, Father, be with us. Help us as we go out into the world and we strive to make the invisible Christ known or visible to an unbelieving world. May your spirit be at work. We ask for revival. We see the condition of this nation, O oh Lord. We pray that you would transform this nation, that you would send forth revival, that your spirit would be at work, that people who reject you would come to you, even people in authority. And may this happen, Father, from the way you desire, from the bottom up. May your church be the church. May we be abounding in righteousness and holiness, that the world would marvel. And may your spirit be at work as we proclaim your word and your truth. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his name's sake. Amen.